0: Thanks for that reading, Eric. Um, As Mark has mentioned, we're doing the first of four weeks of parables and we're focusing on Matthew's gospel as we look at some, just a small handful of Jesus' parables. So let me pray for us as um, we come to that section that's just been read. Ask that God will help us. It's a challenging section, uh, even though it's well known to us. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here tonight. We thank you that your word has been given to us, that you've ensured that it has come down through the generations uh, faithfully and that we can trust it, Uh, that you've given it for us not only so that we might know how to come to salvation through faith in your son, but also how to then live in the light of your grace. And we pray as we think about uh, the kingdom of heaven tonight that you might challenge us afresh, that you might help us to uh, see Uh, Your calling upon our lives if we have uh, placed our trust in your Son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, things can be greater than they seem. From small things, really big things can grow. It's a story we often see in business, actually. Uh, Take, for example, the story of young IT geek um, Mark Zuckerberg, age 19, He's at Harvard University, he's obviously got lots of spare time in his course, Got, got to fill it in, so he creates this social networking site with a few of his friends, and this site takes off. Within four years, suddenly he has 500 million users, and he has an offer from one of the IT giants in Microsoft who say they want to offer him $240 million for a stake in his company that's just taken off and gone global. Of course, that stake that they were offering was only for 1.6% of the company, which meant that Facebook was suddenly, four years after its commencement, valued at $15 billion. Here was the guy that had started something, and overnight, seemingly, was a billionaire. It seems strange to us now, but at that point, when he was given that offer in 2007, um, MySpace.com was actually the largest (laughs) social network site soon to be overtaken quickly by Facebook. Um, But it justified that offer from Microsoft that he had rejected Yahoo overtaking his company for $1 billion the previous year. It was now worth $15 and would go on to be worth much more. In fact, that $240 million from Microsoft meant that all their expansion plans could come to fruition, that they could get things moving as they were hoping before they'd finally listed as a public company. And they did that in 2012, by which time... Uh, his company was then worth $104 billion. And today, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's stake, personally, is $24 billion. Imagine that. A relatively poor uni student, we imagine, uh, creates this thing in his dorm room with a few friends. Overnight, he's a billionaire, and now he's become one of the largest philanthropists in the United States as he gives away some of these millions of dollars that he has been blessed with. From small beginnings, really big things... Can grow, And I raise that example of extraordinary growth because that's one of the two themes that we'll see running through these parables that we're going to consider tonight from Matthew 13. Actually, we're going to consider a far greater, uh, far more significant growth story, but one that's largely unheralded, uh, unlike Facebook. And so the big question that I want you to consider this evening is this. Why is the kingdom of heaven so significant? Why is the kingdom of heaven so significant? I've got two answers to that question tonight. And the first answer is this. Because it is much larger than we perceive. The kingdom of heaven is much larger than we perceive. Have a look again at verses 31 to 33 as Jesus tells these opening two short parables. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. So here's Jesus illustrating the remarkable future growth of the kingdom of heaven at that point by comparing it to a mustard seed, uh, which was really known in the first century. It was proverbial for its smallness. It's not the smallest seed that does exist, uh, but it was the most common one that was used in Israel, such a small size. But it would grow into a bush or a shrub that could be 8 to 10 feet high, 3 meters high if you like. And so it becomes even a small tree from such a a small seed, something large grows. And it attracted many birds in Israel and other areas, which would come to eat its little black seeds. And so it's quite common for uh, commentators to look at this story and think, yeah, there's an amazing picture of growth. Something small goes to something large. But then they want to talk about all these um, birds coming and flocking down the trees. Perhaps this is the Gentiles flocking into the kingdom of heaven as they come to appreciate Um, what Jesus brings as his ministry on earth takes place. Now, that analogy makes sense. It's perhaps true. But I don't think it's actually what Jesus is making the point about here. These parables are really short and specific, and they just make one main point. So I think if there's a point that comes out of the birds is that this small seed has now grown into something large enough for birds to come and perch in. The kingdom uh, kingdom of heaven, which was so small in its beginnings in Jesus' earthly ministry with his band of 12 disciples and then a few thousand believers in Jerusalem, would grow to something incredibly large. That's the point that Jesus is making. And then he reinforces that truth, doesn't he, with a second parable uh, about the kingdom. This time yeast that is worked into the flour, or large batch, goes all the way through the dough. I think as you read this parable in our English translations, they're a little bit misleading because it's not about um, yeast in the sense of a new source being put into the flour and creating, but it's leaven. So it's from an existing batch. You know, They keep a little bit. It continues to ferment, is kept and put into the new batch so that it will then spread again through that dough. And the phrase large amount here is actually a translation uh, in the Greek of three measures of flour. So that was a bushel in the old um, measurements, or about 40 litres, in metric so this is a large amount of flour or dough to work that is as much as one person could reasonably need or work um, on a large table or bench so this is a really small bit of leaven from previous bit put into a huge batch of dough and again from something small he's saying this leaven will just go and permeate throughout this giant amount of dough so it's meant to be a picture for us of the pervasive impact the huge influence that the gospel can have on our society as it's passed on and how we're actually all related to that original unchanging gospel message that original piece of leaven if you like the gospel is passed on generation by generation and it's spread to us so that we are gathered here tonight and these parables were important in the first century it's easy to see why isn't it in a context where It seemed to them millions upon millions of pagan worshippers that were following all the Roman idols. And then there was all the Jewish population who knew about the true God but who had largely rejected Jesus, the Messiah. And here's this small band, this little minority group of Christians coming to faith in this huge sea, as it were, of others that had all these other beliefs. And they were persecuted often. So Jesus is reassuring them, yeah, well, it's a small group now and you might feel like this, um, you know, you're under the pump as a small minority, but this is going to grow into a massive thing. The kingdom of heaven will see many people come into it. And they were not to be swayed by the size of other things. They'd have to realise that what they had joined would be something great in the years that would follow. I think as we apply that to ourselves today, I think we need to realise that we're part of something so much bigger. It's important for us to hear Because I think today, sometimes as we um, hear reports in the news or we look around at our society today, we think, well, there's not a lot of people, it seems, that are trusting in Jesus. Perhaps you have a sense that there's not a lot of your friends or family coming to faith. And so we can feel like a small minority in our country with many other people who increasingly are ticking other boxes on the census, that they don't believe anything or whatever, another religion We need to be reminded that we're part of this huge thing, this work that God has been doing for 2,000 years throughout the globe. And though we may not be seeing perhaps so much in Australia today, God is at work, has always been at work, and His kingdom will continue to grow. And some stats to help us think about that, which I think we need at times. The Centre for the Study of Global uh, Christianity, which is based at Gordon Conwell Seminary in the United States, Uh, put together a report as often these groups do every few years, brought out some statistics about four or five years ago to help people get a picture of what's happening in the church around the world. In this report, they're presenting um, stats from 1970 up to 2020. They were sort of estimating for the next few years as well. So it's looking over a 50-year period and their estimation is that in 2020, there'll be 2.5 billion Christians in the world or 33% Of those on planet Earth will claim Christ. That includes 1 billion Catholics or thereabouts, about 500 million Protestants, over 220 million Orthodox, and many other groupings as we go down. Now, you might say, well, perhaps there's a lot of cults uh, mixed up in those numbers. Maybe there's a lot of nominalism, especially within Catholic or Orthodox traditions. They may not all be genuine believers or followers of Jesus. They may be just ticking a census box that says they're Christian. But even if you allowed for all of that and reduced those numbers somewhat, this is an amazing amount of growth, isn't it, for a faith that started with the baby born in a manger that we just celebrated a week ago? That God has seen to it that the message of the gospel has gone out to all nations and so many people have responded. And there are now more Christians in Africa and in Latin America than there are in Europe. Often people say that, well, Europe sort of became the cradle as years went on of the spread of the gospel, and that's true. But there are now over 600 million Christians in Africa and Latin America and under 600 million in the Europe european area which of course has been declining over the last few decades except for eastern europe where the collapse of the soviet union has seen the gospel go forward in some of those places and lots of churches planted but asia is the fastest growing region of the world in terms of the spread of christianity followed closely by africa there's now 420 million christians in asia about three and a half percent growth each year over the last couple of decades about 3% in Africa. And if you were to think longer term, if you go back to 1900, let's say just 100 years ago or so, there were 9 or 10 million Christians in the whole of Africa. And today, 630 million. You know, there are more Presbyterians in the African country of Ghana today than there are in Scotland. There are more African <laughs> Anglicans in Nigeria than they are in the whole of Britain. The world has changed. God has seen his gospel go out and many believers come to faith. And we can rightly look at, I guess, our own region, Oceania with Australia New Zealand and the islands and so on. And it has been in decline, sadly, over the last couple of decades. It's probably reduced by about 4 to 5%. But God is doing a mighty work in Asia and parts of Africa. And so we need that kingdom perspective as we think about what God is doing in this world and what we are part of as believers. And that's why it's so helpful each week, isn't it, to hear about mission work overseas, to be reminded of that bigger perspective, to hear about what's happening in Bangladesh as we send yet another short-term mission team to that country, Uh, to hear about what's happening in Cambodia from the Khyams or what's happening uh, in Lebanon with the Sleeman family or in Thailand with Jasmine Ng or in Albania with the Reeve family and in many places besides, we need to have that global focus. We need to praise God for what he is doing all around his world. And that will correct us from just having a narrow local perspective. It should also spur us on. We need to realise that we're part of that global impact. If you think about all of the international students that have come to UOW over the last 20 years or so, and the many more that may yet come, And the way many of them come to hear about Jesus here and respond in faith to him and then return, as it were, to missionaries, to their families and hometowns after a few years. There is a global impact that we have even in Wollongong or the many short-term workers that have come to Blue Scope and other places and then returned home a few years later. And all of that should spur us on as we reach out to our local community in the Illawarra. We know that there are tens of thousands of people who are yet to respond to God's grace in our own region but as we hear what God is doing in other places, that should spur us on to be bold in sharing the good news with the opportunities that we have here. Well, I hope that encourages you. And I hope you need to, don't need to be reminded that there are many yet to hear. And despite all of that, uh, all the encouragement that comes from hearing that big picture, it's been estimated that over the last couple of decades, the growth um, overall around the world of Christians is about 1%. While there's lots of growth in some areas and going backwards in others, it all averages out to be not a lot of growth. Um, A lot of commentators have said over the last couple of decades, the Great Commission has stalled, that we're not seeing uh, the growth that has previously taken place. And so we need to be spurred on to keep thinking about the needs, not only here in our own region, but all around the world. It's estimated that still 25% of the world don't have the Bible in their own language or don't have a local church that they might attend. There may be a radio broadcast that they might be able to hear, but to get down below that onto people on the ground with access to uh, the gospel, there are many people who are without that opportunity. So let's be encouraged to see that we're part of something big and there's yet more still to do. Well, i got a second answer to the question tonight. Second answer to this question, why is the kingdom of heaven so significant? One, because it's far larger than we perceive. But secondly, because it is more valuable than any treasure you will ever be offered. It is worth more than any treasure in this life. Notice again what Jesus states in the second lot of parables from verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. You See, like the previous pair of parables we considered, these two here, again, just stress one basic point, one simple point. And that is this, the kingdom of heaven is of such supreme worth that we should be willing to sacrifice everything in order to attain it. Or if you like, enter it. In the first parable in verse 44, the kingdom's likened to this man who finds a treasure in a field. And I think initially as we read that, we think that's a bit strange. None of us tend to walk around burying things in our backyard these days. But remember, there weren't a lot of banks in those days. And so there was a lot of wars and invasions and problems that happened. And you couldn't be certain of things being kept. And so it was something that people did quite often, actually. It was a safe option. And then you could come back to it later. But of course, as events overtook people's lives, or perhaps wars or things happened, sometimes people didn't get back to that treasure that had been buried. And so there were these forgotten and lost treasures lying around. And so it's not an unlikely story. Here is this man who's working in the field. He's likely to have been a poor labourer. If you were a landowner in that day, you usually didn't work your land. You sent somebody else to do it. And so he's probably a poor man. He's working the land and he comes across as he's digging and setting up for the next planting of whatever's happening there's this treasure in the field goes away sells everything he can so that he can buy this field having buried the treasure again and then he will be the owner of this great treasure that he's come across now remember this is a parable it's a constructed story so we don't want to press too deeply on the moral issues that might (laughs) flow out of that maybe you're thinking he needs to go and tell the landowner about this that's not his treasure well um actually In rabbinic law, under the Jewish system, it was finder's keepers. If you found such a treasure, then it was yours. In any case, he's going to go and buy the land, and that would have ended any uh, contest of the money. But keep in mind, what he's doing is finding something that is so precious, that is representing the kingdom of heaven, that he'll give up everything else to get this one thing. Similar point in the second parable. It's about the fine pearl. Same point. But there's a contrasting storyline behind it. Notice this time, it's not a poor man. It's actually a rich merchant. He's somebody who travels around deliberately seeking fine pearls. And when he finds this perfect one, he's going to give up everything he owns, presumably a lot in his case, so that he might get this one pearl. A very different kind of case. Um, Like gold, pearls were considered to be of great value in the first century, not much different today, uh, produced by this living process in the sea, Uh, They were rare, they were hard to get hold of, and this man gives up everything that he might have. Now, as we think about these two scenarios, uh, think with me about what this means in terms of a person hearing the good news and then entering into the kingdom of heaven, valuing the kingdom of heaven above other things. We might say in the first example that this man just stumbles across the gospel, as it were. He's not really looking for God, he's not seeking the truth, But God intervenes in his life, as it were, and he stumbles upon the gospel, realises its value, and gives up everything that he might enter the kingdom of God. But in the second example, there's a guy who's actually seeking out the treasure, in his case, the pearl. Maybe you can picture somebody who's investigated the gospel for years. They've talked to their Christian friends. They've read lots of books, got their own copy of the Bible. They're on websites, whatever it might be. And they're trying to nut it out for themselves. They're really seeking the truth. And when they finally grasp it, they give up all that they've had for this one thing, this pearl of great price to enter God's eternal kingdom. Well, I think there's a lot that we can learn as we reflect on those two parables, as we apply it to ourselves today. I guess the first application I want to make is towards anyone here is not clear where they stand with Jesus and not sure about the step of having a relationship with God. If you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord or Saviour, the interesting flip side to these parables is that the Kingdom of Heaven, or Christ Himself, will grab our heart. It will be the greatest treasure if we come to faith in Him. But if we haven't, there will be another treasure that has captured our heart. In fact, that will be the thing that will stop us moving towards Jesus often. And so I'd like you to consider, if that's you tonight and you haven't made that step of trusting Jesus for the payment of your debt before God, what is it that's holding you back? I mean, is it something in this earthly life that you just can't let go of? The idea of God's eternal kingdom just seems unsure in the light of this thing that you grasp or have in your hand as it were now. And maybe it's a fear of the change that entering god's kingdom will mean i mean if jesus is the king of this kingdom then he's going to require you to live his way and that's going to produce new things in your life maybe there's things that will have to be given up and you don't really want to leave those things behind you're fearful of that i want to say if you're really serious about investigating finding out truly seeking god then God will help you with that process. Every person who's here tonight who's a believer has come probably to a point like that in their life where they've had to weigh up what it is that they're holding on to that they need to let go of in order to embrace Christ. Pray about that. Seek people around you that you know to talk through that with. Keep reading, keep searching. Ask God to show you that you might make that decision. Because I want to say to you that God has gone to great lengths. 2,000 years ago, He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to come and live the perfect life as your substitute in your place and then to lay down His life to pay your debt. We all have a debt before God because of our rejection of Him. Because the truth is, without Christ as the King over His kingdom, then we're the King of our own kingdom. What we've said is, look, I want to be ruler of my life. I'm going to do things my way. And it's all about my earthly kingdom and how I live. And so it's a big thing to realize that we need to step off that throne, that it's actually God's throne, that he should be the ruler over our life. And therefore we've rejected, we've rebelled against God and we need his forgiveness that we're out of step with him. And the one solution that God offers is the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus And as a result, there is a free offer of entry into God's kingdom, His eternal kingdom, by simply trusting what Jesus has done through His death on the cross and His resurrection on the third day, which cancels your debt if you trust His payment. And that means giving control of your life over at that point. We can't have, as I've said, Jesus as our saviour, where we want the rescue as if heaven is an insurance policy, but we don't really want him to be Lord of our life and we want to keep doing things our way as if we're still sitting on the throne. Now, that's not how it works. God calls us to put Jesus in charge. But secondly, if you're here tonight and you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, then what does a parable like this mean for you? How does this apply and challenge you tonight? Well, let me say this. If you have come under the authority of Jesus, then as the king of your life, he actually commands you that your thinking, your actions should all be under his leadership, his rule. And it means that his kingdom will come first and your earthly kingdom or pursuits as it were, your own desires will be subsumed under his rule. And what he would have for your life. King Jesus, whose kingdom you've entered by faith, commands you to do this. You now live life on his terms and not on your terms. Let me give you one example of how Jesus puts this to those that might follow him. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 33. Famous section that you may know well. Jesus says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or... What shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. What does it mean to put His kingdom first, His righteousness first? How would that shape a person's life? I don't know if you know much about the country of the Congo in Africa, called Zaire for a period. Um, There were a lot of missionaries going in and seeking to reach locals throughout the 1960s, but civil war erupted as uh, rebels started going against uh, the government in 1964 in particular. And in that time, many missionaries were caught up in the crossfire of what was unfolding in the country. One of those people was an American man named William McChesney, Uh, He was nicknamed Smiling Bill because he was such a positive guy, had such a bright personality, just seemed to radiate cheer wherever he went. But in November of 1964, at only the age of 28, he was caught up in the Civil War, captured by some rebels, and taken and thrown into a filthy, crowded prison cell. A couple of other missionaries were with him. But he had come down with malaria in the week or two prior to this. And so he was already feverish with the malaria and struggling with his health at that point. As he was thrown into the prison, he was beaten mercilessly, clothing torn off his back. He was shaking so violently from the fever in the next couple of days that the prisoners were trying to help him and give him clothing, trying to look after him in the cell. But before their eyes, a couple of days later, he and a couple of other missionaries were dragged out and violently killed in front of them all. But before leaving for Africa, uh, Bill had written a poem, age of, uh, age of 24 in 1960, explaining his desire that he would go to Africa, faithfully obey and serve God to put his kingdom first and whatever plans he had for his life previously second. And he wrote this famous poem that got published. It says this in part. I want my breakfast served at eight, with ham and eggs upon the plate, a well-cooked steak I'll eat at one and dine again when day is done. I want an ultra-modern home, and in each room a telephone, soft carpets too upon the floors, pretty drapes to grace the doors, a place of cosy, lovely things like easy chairs with inner springs. and." And then I'll get a small TV. Of course, I'm careful what I see. But then I hear the master in no uncertain voice, so clear. I bid you come and follow me, the lowly man of Galilee. In shame, I hung my head and cried. How could I spurn the crucified? Could I forget the way he went? The sleepless nights in prayer he spent? If he be God and died for me, no sacrifice too great for me. For me, a mortal man to make, I'll do it all for Jesus' sake. And so I will tread the path he trod. No other way to please my God. So henceforth, this my choice shall be, my choice for all eternity. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, when I hear words like that, I'm cut to the heart because I'm challenged to think about my own commitment to Christ's kingdom or whether I'm just living for the comforts of this world. Am I serving God or am I serving myself? Do I care more for the easy life or for the growth of God's kingdom that will draw people from darkness to life? I don't know, what about you? Are you chasing material possessions, career, fame, even the approval of other people that you might please them or impress them? Or are you seeking simply to please God, to serve Him faithfully? You're so sold out that you're just here for the sake of His kingdom and nothing else really matters. You know, a faithful, obedient service doesn't require you to become a missionary like Bill McChesney. It doesn't require you to go to the Congo. But it does require you to have the same attitude that he had. It does require that. That our hearts may not be wrapped up in the empty things of this world, but that we're sold out for Christ's kingdom. You see, if you are, you'll pass over the supposed treasures of living in this world, which are really (laughs) the empty trinkets of a Western world that these days is just fully consumed with its own comfort and pleasure. You'll pass over those things for something far more valuable, something that's eternal. Christ's kingdom, being faithful to God to such an extent that you're focused on heaven on eternity rather than this world that is simply passing away. As American pastor and author Mark Dever notes, uh, reflecting on this story of William McChesney, he said, when that smiling, self-confident 24-year-old wrote that poem and had it published in his missionary organization (laughs) magazine, that was the choice before him. But why would anyone choose that? I mean, thousands of Christians were killed in those Simba uprisings as they became known in the Congo 54 years ago. Thousands of them died. And at the time, the population of the Congo had about 10% Christians. But you know what? Today, after thousands of believers and hundreds of missionaries have died in that country, 25% of the Congo are evangelical Christians. God is at work. That's a remarkable growth of churches, Mark Dever wrote, which is still being reported even in the last couple of years. What about you? You and the kingdom of heaven? See, we began with the question tonight, why is the kingdom of heaven so significant? If you're being called to give your life to something, you want to know that it's significant, right? Why is the kingdom of heaven so significant? Why should you lay down everything for this? Well, we've seen firstly that it's a lot bigger than we think it is. If we think the kingdom of heaven is some small thing in the corner that God's not doing much, then we don't see as God sees. 33% of the planet, 2.5 billion people, Millions over the last two millennium that have come to faith in the Lord Jesus, this despised man from Galilee, God's not at work. God's at work. Secondly, the value of this kingdom. What is it that you would hold on to in this life that would be greater or more value, more worthy of your attention than the kingdom of heaven? A career that will be forgotten in a couple of decades some amount of fame name in a book for a generation or two i think the question for each of us is whether we've grasped the extent and the worth of god's work in this world the value of the kingdom of heaven and if we do any sacrifices unimportant it's a nothing in comparison to being part of what god is doing Look, we're on the cusp of 2019, and we've already said tonight. A new year's ahead of us. And My prayer for myself is that I'll have more of that attitude. And what that will look like in your life will be different to mine. But it starts with a commitment that I'm going to live for the kingdom of heaven, even more so in 2019. And the things that are passing, they're not going to get my attention. And I pray that that's your priority for the next year as well. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that Jesus' words are just so clear about what is most important in this life. We thank you that he is the kingdom, he is the king of an eternal kingdom which we are called into through faith in your son and we pray lord that you might help us not only to take that step of trusting jesus but to live for him in all that we do lord help us we pray this night to commit ourselves as we think ahead this day this week to living simply for you and for your kingdom for its growth so that many more may be drawn into this eternal work of yours that we may be so gladdened as we stand on that great day before you with thousands upon thousands who have come to faith, whom we've had the opportunity to share the good news with. Lord, we pray that you might grant us strength by your spirit, eyes to see your work in your world and wills to put that into practice this day, this week, for we ask it in Christ's name.